I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Last week we began a, a new series, a series that we are titling Gospel BC, or BC for short. It is a survey of the Old Testament that, well, uh, our hope is to just show uh, a number of ways in which the Gospel, the God's plan for us, His glory shown in, in the sending of His Son, has been evident from the very beginning. It is not just something that happened uh, as a response to our predicament, but from the very beginning, God had revealed what He would do and His glory in that. Last week, we began with the study of the fall. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, having been created by God at the same time, uh, soon thereafter rebelled uh, against God, not uh, in, in ways that we might often consider rebellion, but by disobedience, uh, desiring to have their own way. And yet, in response to that, while God had declared there would be a judgment, and a judgment did come, in that judgment, God also promised, for the first time we see in Scripture, the one who would come in our place through belief in whom we would have the remedy for our condition. From that point, uh, between that text and where we are this morning, we see uh, the follow-up with Adam and Eve, our first parents, and, and their sons, and then subsequently the genealogies and description of the earth uh, for a time, and it began to get worse. It culminated at such a point that God decided that he would start over, and so through a flood which engulfed the earth, he wiped out everyone with the exception of one family, and from that one family he began to rebuild, and he, uh, here we have uh, several generations after the flood had uh, subsided, and we pick up and seeing how, what, what's going on with society at that, at that point. Uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come this morning, I do pray that you would speak to us by your word and show us what we are to see, open our eyes and our hearts to receive what we are to understand. Feed us, we pray, by your word, for you have told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, nourish our souls as we come. We pray in the name of he who is both the bread of life and the word incarnated, Christ Jesus. Amen. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they have purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so 
that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building, left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. When I look at this passage, I tried to do so uh, with fresh eyes. In other words, I, I looked at it and tried to consider it as if I had never seen it before and had no benefit of previous study or the insights of others, either who I've read or I've heard speaking about this uh, in the past. And looking at it as one with fresh eyes, I found myself asking this question. What's the big deal? I mean, what did they do that was really so bad that warranted God coming down amongst them and pronouncing a judgment and scattering them, confusing them, scattering them throughout the earth? They wanted to build a tall building. Big deal. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Who doesn't? I mean, they don't, they don't seem to be that great of an offense. I think most people want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. I, I know I do, and, and I know I have for quite some time. As I look back in my own life, it's one of the things that I enjoyed and I miss about having been part of a football team from the time I was 8 until I was 22 years old. There was something great about having a common purpose with others, that you focus on trying to accomplish something you do it together, everybody facing in the same direction, everybody with common objectives, everybody with distinct roles, working together to accomplish something. And if you're successful, sometimes you make a name for yourself. It's probably what led me after I could no longer play to begin coaching in high school and in other levels because I was still able to be part of that and impart uh, some th knowledge that I had to others and still be part of something that was bigger than myself. It's one of the things I enjoy about being part of Christ's church. God has created his church and he has put his church on mission, on God's mission. And the mission he's given us is absolutely, it's tremendous. And if you think about it, it is it's really overwhelming. The mission of the church is to spread the glory of God to every corner of the earth, to declare the gospel to every people in every language, in every tribe. It's a daunting task if you think about it. It's one that, in one sense, that it seems like it would be almost impossible or impossible for us to, to do, to go everywhere. And yet missiologists tell us that it's one that could actually be fulfilled within this generation, that every language could have the gospel in it. Every people will have had an opportunity to hear the gospel, and it could be accomplished if we've committed our, ourselves and our resources to accomplishing that, at least within, uh, within uh, our own efforts. We could do the uh, the the broad strokes of what we are, are required to do in that task. But it, it's something that we're called to do together. It's something that is bigger than us. It's something that brings unity uh, of the body together as we are trying to accomplish that. It's something that causes us to be one. And, and the fact is, God has said that his church is to be one. There should be a, a unity among his people. It's one of the more perplexing things as I look at this text. Because at this time in their history, in history, the people were as one in a way that we don't see too many other times. Nothing really rivals it. The people were all of one mind, and they wanted to be together. They wanted to hang out together. 
they had migrated from wherever they had come uh, and, and continued to move, but they moved together, and then their plan was, let's build a city out on this plain. Well, a city is a place where people hang out. So they were building a place where not only would the people building the city be able to hang together, but others would be able to join them in future generations as well. They wanted to build a name for themselves, which is one of the more perplexing attitudes that I find in this text because if I, I think about this and as they have all come and all come up together and everybody was there and everybody had one language, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Who were they trying to impress? Everybody was already there. It's not like they had the next state over, the next town over, that they were going to say, well, those people over in Shinar, they really, they're really impressive. There were no other people. They were all there was. I think the answer to that is that what they were really wanting to do is they were wanting to cast a, a legacy. They were wanting to have subsequent generations be aware that they had been there, of what they stood for, what they were able to accomplish, something lasting that would be reflective of their, of their intelligence and their capabilities, something that people would admire, perhaps that they would be known as the greatest generation, at least for that point in time. And all of these are very common ideals, things that many people share, many of us share. And again, it leaves us with the question, what's the big deal? But if we begin to look at this passage and look at their actions from God's perspective, we begin to see things in a new light. When we look at this from God's perspective, we see the problem with not only their thinking, but their actions. There may be any number of, of minor problems, but I, I see two major problems that we need to consider, not only so that we can understand this text, but so that we can look at our lives in light of the understanding we gain from looking at these people as they live their lives and God who is present everywhere. First issue that we see, I think, is, is relatively clear as we, as we look at it. We see they were just disobedient. See, after the flood, God had given Noah and his family a, a very clear commandment, and the commandment was they were to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over all of the earth. It may be that they were to go to all the earth because God had created all the earth. All the earth was good. God has ordained that he would receive praise from all the corners of the earth. The people that God had created or that worship God are only in segments of the earth. It may open others to the idea that God is only interested in parts of the earth or is tribal and that not all of the earth belongs to the Lord. He created it. It's all his. And so he wanted his people to spread out. Whatever God's reasons were, his commandment was very clear. Be fruitful, multiply, spread on out. And the people said, we'll do part of that. The people were fruitful and they were willing to multiply because from that small band that got off the ark a few generations and several hundred years later, we find that scholars tell us that there was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people on the earth at that point. So they took the fruitful part seriously and they were willing to participate. But the spreading out part, not so much. But we see the words here in this passage. The Lord said, spread out. And they said, let's not spread out. Let's all go together. Let's all hang out together. In fact, let's build a, let's build a city so that people can all be together in one place. And when we do that, let's build a name for ourselves. So God was saying, spread out, and they were saying, we're not going to spread out, and we see a direct disobedience, and all disobedience is evidence of, of sin. 
that raises another issue, or at least another question that I had to wrestle with. Where did the sin come from? So if I look back at the flood and, and the whole purpose of the flood and what God was trying to do in the flood and then the results of the flood, it's, it's a legitimate question. Because the purpose of the flood was God was going to begin again what he had already created. His creation rebelled against him. People had gotten so wicked. He said, I'm done with this. I'm going to start all over, and I'm going to choose. I'm going to just pick one family, one family that is declared righteous, and I'm going to rebuild with that one family. And so then as the flood came, he wiped everybody else off the face of the earth, everyone who was unrighteous, everyone who was wicked, everyone who had rebelled against God, people who had no interest in God. And he chose one family that had been declared righteous and had proven their godliness, proven their faithfulness, even during the time leading up to the flood. Because God had told Noah, build an ark. Noah began building an ark, and his neighbors came and wondered what he was doing, thought he was crazy. When Noah explained that there was a flood that was coming, people said, flood? At that point in history, there hadn't even been any rain. So where was the flood going to come from? They had no idea, and so they mocked him. He was persecuted in a lot of ways, and yet Noah and his family, they persevered. When the flood came, the Lord spared them, wiped, off the wiped all the others off the face of the earth, and then when the flood subsided, began to rebuild with this family that had been declared righteous, this family that was God-fearing, this family that had been obedient even in the face of persecution. They were righteous. There was nobody on the earth except for them. And so as you go generation after generation, the only ones that we have as we come to Genesis chapter 11 are the direct descendants of that one righteous family. They had children, their children had children, so on and so on, until you have a whole population coming from a righteous family. But if a flood wiped out everybody who had rebelled against God, had disobeyed God, who demonstrated their sinfulness, why are we seeing such disobedience in these people now? It's an important question, and in many ways it's a simple question, and we've been to Sunday school, you've been in Bible studies, and you've understood it. But I think it's an important question for us as conservative church folks to consider. Because I think too often we have a mindset that is, at the best is cognitive dissonance, that we, we, can, we say one thing, but we feel or really believe something entirely different. And so simply the answer to why is, there a, why is the, the, the culture now disobeying God, a direct disobedience of what God has commanded? And the answer is because they are still inflicted with the condition of sin. Sin was not eradicated in the flood. Sin uh, exists in the heart of every person subsequent to our first parents, including the ones who were declared to be righteous. While they acted in faith, nevertheless, they still carried with them the infection of sin. It shows in their own lives as we look at their actions after the flood, but it begins to multiply, and as people are born sinful and others still carrying sin, sin becomes very prevalent within the society. And the reason I say that is because as conservative people, conservative evangelical people, many times we have this mistaken idea that as long as we isolate ourselves from the sinners out there, as long as we withdraw, quarantine ourselves from the people who clearly are disobedient to God's word, not like us, then we'll be okay. And so we isolate ourselves from people, even though God has called us to spread out all over the world in order to proclaim the gospel as well. To be involved in our communities, to be involved with our neighbors, believers and unbelievers alike, we isolate ourselves because we think that's the best way to protect ourselves from the influences of sin. 
And we think that as long as we're away from those who express their sin in unabashed ways, we are fine. But we find out that even if we isolate ourselves, sin shows itself in many ways and always in ugly ways. In one way, we need to look at this condition or this mindset that we have of isolating ourselves from the world, thinking that that is the way that we show ourselves to be holy. That's the way we keep ourselves pure. Much like you might look at an old 1980s horror movie. Imagine it's a movie back at that time, and you have a, a young, maybe a teenage girl. There's a monster that's chasing her. And she's running and running and running, and she keeps looking back over her shoulder to see if the monster who she has seen is chasing her. And she doesn't see him, so she thinks that she's gotten a little bit of distance between herself and the monster that is threatening her. She finally gets to her house. She gets in the door. She shuts the door. She locks it. She moves some furniture in front of the door, barricading herself inside the house, keeping herself away from the grips. by barricading ourselves, it should be a clear indication that we are disobeying God because like the people here, we are saying we'd rather huddle together than to spread out and do what you would want us to do and there's a, uh, there's a direct disobedience if we are not engaging our community. See, the remedy for our sinful condition is not to isolate ourselves and to quarantine ourselves. The remedy for our sinful condition is only one thing. It's to acknowledge that we have this condition. and then trust in the provision that God has given to us. That's the only way that we are able to overcome it. It's the only way we are able to say no. If we ignore it, it will continue to eat away at us. It will begin to it will continue to infect our culture, both our church, the culture at large. And so what we see here the, at first is that the people were, were disobedient. They were willing to do part of what God wanted them to do. They weren't willing to do all of what God wanted them to do. They thought they would do their own thing. They thought they knew better. Even though much of what they were doing is impressive, maybe even commendable, nevertheless, they still had this problem. Sin is at the root of it. Disobedience is the evidence of it. Their disobedience showed themselves in this, and it leads us to our, our, second, our second problem that we see that these people have that we need to be aware of. I would call it ungodliness. See, the people said, we'll do our own thing. We'll do part of what God wants, but basically we're going to call the shots. We have our own agenda. We're going to do what we want to do. God said, here's what you're supposed to do. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worry about living for God. We're going to live for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. That's the, that's the object of their lives. That's the purpose for which they were living, to make a name for themselves. Now, the crown jewel of their name was going to be in the tower that they were building. It's known as a structure. It's called a, a ziggurat. There were about 15 ziggurats in that time uh, of, uh, uh, in ancient lands uh, around the, in the Middle East. A ziggurat is, is a structure that was kind of like a steepled uh, wedding cake. It was very broad along the base, primarily circular, and then it would 
get narrower as you went up, and each level created a, essentially a staircase. And so what they were creating was essentially a stairway to heaven. They were going to build the biggest and most impressive ziggurat that was out there. And it was probably something impressive, though we have no idea how, how high it was or how high they intended it to be. What we do know is a number of archaeologists suggest that it may actually still be in existence. As I said, they have found about 15 ziggurats in that area of, of the world uh, that are in existence, or at least the remnants of And there are two that uh, scholars have pinpointed that may be the remnant of the Tower of Babel. Saddam Hussein, who was the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, a one-time king of Babylon from which Babel uh, was the, the founding city, thought that he had figured out which one it was. Now, whether it still exists or not, this was going to be their pride. This was going to be quite an impressive feat that they were going to, uh, they were going to embark on. They were going to create a tower that would have caused people to be impressed with them. It was going to be their lasting legacy. Again, on the face of it, it doesn't seem that horrendous a thing to do. They're making a tall building. Now we could do like some superstitious biblicists do and say, okay, God doesn't like tall buildings. That's, that's not what the text is teaching by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But their actions and their words reveal their hearts. Their actions of building a tall building wasn't the problem, but the fact that they were going to build this building up to the heavens and their goal was to make a name for themselves indicates what their real priority was. It's an indication that their hearts had become self-centered and not God-centered. Their focus was making a name for ourselves, not declaring the glory of God, not living for the glory of God. Now, we don't see that these people totally rejected that. We don't see a people here and any indications from this text that said, we don't want anything to do with God, we hate God. We don't even see that there's any immoral behavior uh, as we see the descriptions that took place prior to the flood, and we see it up. By their own description of themselves, if they make no profession of faith, they would be ungodly. They wouldn't even be offended with that description if you describe it as one who doesn't believe in God or has no relationship to God. But that doesn't mean that they're not nice. doesn't mean that they're not nice to be around. doesn't mean that they don't do good things. That could very well describe these people here. Ungodliness is something that's very different. Jerry Bridges, in his helpful book, Respectable sins helps us with a draw a picture with a couple of definitions. Here's what Bridges writes. He says this, contrary to what we normally think, ungodliness and wickedness are not the same. A person may be a nice, respectable citizen and still be an ungodly person. Ungodliness describes an attitude toward God. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will 
or of God's glory or of one's dependence upon God. Let me read that last part again. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence upon God. Now, that certainly describes the people we have in our text. Whether they were thinking of God at all, we have no idea. But they were not concerned with God's will because they were directly disobeying it. They were not concerned with God's glory because their chief objective was to make a name for themselves. And they were not depending on God's presence or God's provision because they had got to a point where they could trust in their own capabilities, their own technological advantage, uh, advancements, their own uh, intelligence, their own um, partnership with one another. And so we see ungodliness is a perfect description for these people based on Jerry Bridges' I think, accurate definition. But what's more concerning to me than seeing what defines these people is if I take that definition that is so apt for them, I also have to admit that it's also it's apt for me way more often than I wish was true. Because I am not always conscious of God concerned with God's will or going about God's glory or, or resting in my dependence upon God. In some ways, that may be surprising to some of you, especially considering what I do. I mean, I get paid to study God's Word so that I can teach you about God, help you in areas where you're broken in relationship with God or need to understand God. I get paid to pray, which is talking with God. I mean, that's what my job is to lead us or to be part of a team that is leading us so that we can advance the, the gospel God's glory to the ends of the earth but it might be surprising for you to know that it is really not that difficult to lead God's church without really giving a whole lot of thought to God at all I don't want to suggest to you that I never give thought or that that's not my concern, what I am confessing is, while my great desire is that I would be the godly man that I ought to be, oftentimes I assume God. In other words, I know what God said, I know what we're supposed to do, and so now let's get about the business of helping people, putting things in place that will help people, advancing the kingdom, teaching, focusing on, on the people, which is part of what needs to be done, but it is easy to shift gears from being consciously aware of God and thinking about God and God's glory and just focusing on other things. And worse yet, as at times when I'm far more concerned about whether you will like what I'm doing or appreciate what I'm sharing than whether or not God is pleased that I'm revealing him faithfully. I didn't talk with Camper, so I don't know if I'm alone in this. He may not have that problem. But I do. And it just seems to me that if I have that problem even with what I do, I have to assume some of you have the same difficulty. I imagine if I was a vacuum cleaner salesman, it would be even more difficult. Because again, my responsibilities take me into God's word, cause me to have fellowship with God, and yet I can go about God's, about God's business without really consciously thinking about God. Now, I believe you can be a vacuum cleaner salesman and still be godly and glorify God. I believe you can be, do anything. In fact, every job 
should be done to the glory of God, and every job should be a reflection of some characteristic of God. And as a vacuum cleaner salesman, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? I mean, I've heard that somewhere. Must be a noble state. But I'm not sure how my theology would help me make that next sale. How theology would help me know if I've made being aware or without thinking about the fact that any gifts I have God has given to me how what I do is reflecting God and how I may glorify God I just it just seems to me to be easy to, to, to go about that and not be conscious of how I am to give glory to God it's not just as a vacuum cleaner I think the salesman that would be for anything that anybody does it would seem to me that any job we do, it would be relatively easy to be aware of God, to love God, but then do our job without conscious thought to God. And if we do our jobs or go about our lives in any way, even for just short periods, without conscious thought to God, in those moments where we are acting without being aware of God, without being thankful to God, without being dependent upon God, we then have assumed an identity of ungodliness, even for only a time. What these people are experiencing, their goals, they're not hard to understand. Their attitude is not hard to understand either because it's way too like us. And that is uncomforting. We need to understand that ungodliness is, is, is occurring at any time that we are self-centered rather than God-centered or even others-centered rather than God-centered. And if they didn't believe in God, we don't know. We may have some suspicion that they had some form of belief in God because they at least wanted to build their... We see beginning in verse 5, God decided to come down. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have built, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So one thing we need to realize is God is saying something there's something significant about our capacity as those who have been created after the image of God. 
God's saying, look, once they are working together and using the fact that they have been built, created after my image, the, the capacity of man is absolutely tremendous. God says there's nothing that we cannot accomplish. And we look at our own culture, we look at our own world and see the breakthroughs that have, have, taken, have, have occurred. As the more we understand how God has created the world, how things function, how they are to function, the more breakthroughs that we have. But the more breakthroughs we have, the more we tend to rely, uh, to rely on ourselves rather than on God. But God does say something significant here. And he says at that point, let us go down and see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. Now, it's an interesting phrase here that's easy to overlook. First is the let us go down. Who's the us? From the very beginning, the, Lord's, the scripture says, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And God's saying, let us go down. It's interesting, it's the same word that was used when God said, let us create man in our own image. And so here I would suggest to you we have a clear indication of the Trinity that has existed from all eternity. And if this is the reality of the Trinity, that the us are coming down, it is not only God the Father, but it is the Son and the Holy Spirit who are also yet to still to come to the earth. But they had been in existence from the very beginning. All are God, and yet all are one. But there's going to be a confrontation. What we don't see is that big of a deal. God sees as concerning. And he says, let's go down. And there's going to be a confrontation, confrontation. And God came down, and there is a confrontation. Now, we see the confrontation in one sense here, because God came down, and then he confused all of their languages. And actually, there's an interesting play of words there. The word that is here for Babel, uh, actually, if it was pronounced in the Hebrew, would be Bob El. And that means gateway to God. And that's what they were trying to build. They were trying to build a gateway to God. They were going to build a stairway up to heaven. But the word Bob El that God is using here also sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for confused. And so God basically is saying, they're going to build a Bob El. I'm going to make them babble. And so there's the confrontation that takes place. But in that, while we look at that and see that God, you know, is he just being mean and over? Why didn't he just send a prophet and say, hey, guys, we're not doing the right thing here? I want to suggest to you in this passage and how God functioned here, we see both the graciousness and the gracefulness of God at the same time. Because God, when he came down, even though he scattered them, and it seems horrendous, he could have wiped them out. The only thing keeping him, in one sense, from wiping them out is he promised he wasn't going to wipe out the whole earth again. But he could have done far more damage to them. The only thing he did was confuse their languages so they couldn't understand one another. And not being able to understand one another, they couldn't cooperate anymore. And it was just easier for people to go and, and, and to live with people who spoke the same language, language they could understand. And so God was in one sense very firm and gentle. But then in his graciousness, what he also did is he gave them the boot and moved them into doing what they were supposed to do in the first place. Because once they were scattered, their languages were confused, they began to scatter and go where they were supposed to go from the very beginning in obedience. And so in a very gentle way, firm but gentle, God gracefully and graciously moved them to do what he wanted them to do in the first place, to go to the ends of the earth. But most significantly what we see here is not the confrontation that, that, caused, that brought the judgment. 
but it's a direct confrontation that they may not have understood, but you and I need to see this. See, their whole mindset was that they were going to build by their own efforts, by their own works, they were going to reach up to the heavens. And that's a picture of what man is inclined to do in religion. We think that we are going to work our way up to God somehow. And by our own efforts, our ingenuity, our abilities, we are going to relate to God on our terms. And while they were thinking that that's what they were going to do, God said, while you think you're going to come up, I'm coming down. And he is at this point in time pointing us to another time that it was yet to come, but now has come, when God did come down and dwelt among us for a while and was called Emmanuel. From the very beginning, we see that while man is just so inclined to try to reach up to God, God doesn't leave us nor accept on our own, nor does he accept our own efforts. But he wants us to rest in his provision, and God comes to dwell with us. And it's when we are willing to accept God with us that we find the cure for our dilemma of self-serving, disobedience, and broken relationship with God, whether it comes in overt hostility or simply ignoring or simply assuming God. God will not be assumed, but God will not leave his people. Jesus, who was known as Emmanuel, came so that we would understand that the problems that man had brought upon ourselves are resolved in him. And he reversed everything, even this curse. For in him he's saying that we now have one Lord. There is one faith. As the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and was poured out, the languages that were scattered, people began to hear one tongue. And that tongue proclaiming, Christ is Lord. We have an opportunity and we have a responsibility every single day at every moment to make a decision. Am I going to live for my own, make a name for myself, or am I going to live for the glory of God? I want to challenge you to challenge each other, challenge me. In subtle or firm ways, encourage one another and ask, what choice are you making? Making a name for ourselves will not last. But when we have trusted in Christ, the name that is above all names becomes our name as we are labeled Christian, children of God. Followers of Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that day by day, moment by moment, we will be a people who choose to center our lives upon the one who has come down for us. Let me pray. Father, as we consider this passage, I pray that you will open our eyes to the similarities of that culture and our culture of those people and us. But not so that we will despair or fear that we are out of accord with you, but so that we will know that we share their condition and we will rejoice in the remedy that you have provided in your Son, 
came to be one of us. But now I consider equality with you, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, became obedient even to death, and even death on the cross. And for that reason, you have exalted him above every name. May our attitude be like his. May our hope be found continually in our dependence upon what he has done and what he is doing in our lives. Father, bless us that we may become more and more conformed to Jesus. And I pray in his name.